0: Going on, everybody. This is Rafiki, and welcome to Power VT, a podcast that will take you to the West Indies and beyond with powerful short stories written by yours truly. Here we will also dive into the history, culture, and literature of the region I call home and the parts of the world that help build it into what it is today. Hey guys, happy New Year. Welcome to PowerBT. Welcome to 2023. I don't know about the rest of you all, but I am super happy to be in the new year. Um, So happy new year to everybody. I know at this time it is now three days since the new year. Um, 2022 was hard. Like I saw people on Twitter talking about how 2022 really felt like a chapter, like a long chapter in people's lives that lasted from, you know, the inception of COVID and the pandemic all around the world and, you know, a a bunch of different like systemic and personal things that people have gone through. So good riddance to 2022. I will say that I learned a lot. I've been through a lot, especially this last year, um, many personal things, but I have accomplished, you know, one of my largest goals, returning to New York, finishing college. Um, so I'm, I'm very happy with how 2022 blessed me in the same way that it taught me. Um, so of course, like to prepare for 2023, like I haven't, things I do for New Year's. I think the most important thing that most people do before New Year's is cleaning. So of course, like I try to clean everything down, sweep everything out, you know, um, really like bless my home in that way, not bring in anything stagnant from last year into this year. Um, I didn't really celebrate too much. I know everyone's like, oh, you're in New York. Like, did you see the ball drop? That's what I get all the time. I personally, i'm not a tourist um so i don't like to do touristy things i did want to go to see the ball drop though for my for my boyfriend for him to see it um but the weather was so bad it was like mad rainy and everything like that it was cold i was tired because i get up super early i had a hard time staying up till midnight it just it didn't make sense to go so we ended up not going to staying indoors and the moment the clock struck 12 man i was asleep i was knocked out so my new year's wasn't Wasn't really celebratory in that way I ended up going out like on Monday So New Year's was like what Sunday I went out the next day or something like that Um, so Wasn't super celebratory But I did enjoy it I did really like the fact that New Year's Day Was on a Sunday, I really I really, for me personally, I know for others Like I think that's a big thing Like a day of peace, I'm hoping it's gonna be A year of peace and happiness And no problems Just good vibes, so That's my prayer for 2023. Um, I'm hoping to see this podcast grow really far, see myself grow really far. Currently, I'm like oversharing at this point, but currently on my weight loss journey too, I've gained 40 pounds since 2020. And since I've relocated back to New York in, like it's been almost two months that I've been here, I've lost 12 pounds. So I'm getting really close. I'm trying to keep going. I wanna drop 40 total. Um, get back to my size before the pandemic started and get, you know, back in shape. So that's something that I've set as like a new year's resolution. That's the only one I can really think of. But on the flip side, this would not be a Caribbean podcast if I did not shout out Haiti. Because Haiti, um, as, as many people know, IET, their independence day is on the first day of the new year. Um, Obviously, Haiti is the first black republic in the world, the first um, successful slave revolt on a large scale where enslaved Africans beat European power, specifically the French. Um, And so obviously, Haiti has a has a very well-recorded history. They have a powerful cultural um, history, um, but they have a lot of hardship. Haiti and its people are suffering a lot in the modern day just because of, you know, American and European sanctions. Um, against the country as well as internal turmoil and you know destabilization done by America specifically. Um, so I feel like we owe Haiti a lot. those of us who talk about liberation and freedom, of course black people, I feel like we owe Haiti a lot. Um, but for those who consider themselves allies who talk about liberation and freedom or come from other um, places that have been colonized and essentially you know attacked, um, I think you owe Haiti in a way, too, like because of the example that Haiti has set, regardless of how the country exists today. Um, so I just also wanted to shout out Haiti. Shout out to saint Louverture, the first president of Haiti, I believe. Um, and I'm really hoping the best for that country. Um, I really hope that the stigmas about Haiti are broken down. People love to make stigmas about Haitian Vodun and say that's why that Haiti is cursed, because the day that the revolution started, they came together and did a Vodun ritual um, to unify the different African ethnic groups that were taken um, to Haiti as slaves. And that helped empower the slaves to overcome their European oppressors. Um, So people say since that day, Haiti is cursed, and that's why they get hit with hurricanes and earthquakes and all types of things. And it's just such an ignorant comment, such an ignorant idea, because the Caribbean, as many would know, I would think, the Caribbean is a place of extreme um, geological activity. You know, islands are, are what used to be volcanoes. So that's how those islands appear in the middle of the ocean. And then obviously their location in such warm waters, hurricanes are a thing. I mean, the indigenous people of you know, that island of Hispaniola, you know, the combination of Domin- the Dominican Republic and Haiti, they were probably getting hit with earthquakes and hurricanes all the time. And no one was saying they were cursed. I mean, so I just wish those stigmas about Haiti would break down. Um, I'm praying for Haiti and every shape and form praying for its people. And I'm hoping that they have a better time um, in 2023 and um, in the future so other than new year's and haiti's independence day um this weekend was fairly relaxing i spent the time listening to an african studies podcast that i follow i was um referred to it a long time ago by a friend of mine who um, is really into socialism and pan-africanism and i think it's an even larger history buff and politics buff than i am um so being busy with school i haven't really been able to listen to it i also follow a Caribbean Studies podcasts. You can find these on Apple Music, and or Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Um, and these are essentially podcasts where they go over books that are written within these fields of study. So each episode is followed, or each episode is about a book written in African Studies or in Caribbean Studies. Those are the two I focus on and follow. But you can find things on, you know, Middle Eastern Studies and so on and so forth. So. The podcast episode I recently listened to was about Abdul Al-Kalima, and he is a big name in African studies as they are defined and as they were created in the United States of America. And the episode was interesting. I really wanted to highlight how he and the interviewer spoke about the pitfalls of Afrofuturism in media and as a whole. So, for those that don't know about Afrofuturism, it's kind of like this fantastical idea of, you know, African people or Black people in general and technology. So, like, an example of this in the media is obviously the Black Panther universe within the Marvel universe. So, we think of Wakanda and we think of, you know, things like that. But Abdul al um. He talks about Afrofuturism in that way, but also in a more grounded way, in a more realistic way. And this was an a idea I'd never really thought of. Um, he talks about how while Afrofuturism is powerful because it is inspiring and it, it creates an ideal for people to work towards, it can also be very distracting for people um, and it can also be very misleading. So when you think about Wakanda and, you know, the Black Panther, some of the problems he points out is the fact that Wakanda is a made-up place. It's a made-up country, you know, in Central Africa, where the Congo is generally at. And part of the problem with this fantasy is that it distracts people from how Africa exists in this day, in our actual reality. And then he also speaks about how, you know, with the Black Panther, it would be, it is an empowering, you know, character. It is an empowering movie and comic book series but when you think about the identity of the black panther he points out that only the elite can be the black panther only the ruling class and so it would be different if anyone could take up the mantle of black panther that way it could be a a figure of the people um and these are very interesting critiques i had never thought of and i'm a i'm a huge black panther fan you know my book radiance lost is in that lane of afrofuturism even though it doesn't necessarily involve technology, because Afrofuturism, as I have come to understand it, is essentially just thinking about how we as black people, how we will exist in the future, what that could look like. And so it does have fantastical elements. It does have elements of extre- like super powerful technology and whatnot. But Abdul al he breaks it down in a sense that Afrofuturism should be focused on the future of Africa and its diaspora. In a realistic sense and so as a writer like i thought about that a lot and how without even hearing this episode i think i've kind of thought about that because my short stories specifically those written in and shared on this podcast have been more rooted in reality they're rooted in the west indies or in real places even when they do have fantastical elements so that's something i'm trying to take forward with me as a writer as an afro futurist it's a label i have not used in a long long time but it's very interesting to see that it is um still being carried forward um and so if you want to learn more about abdul akalima you should look him up he has a rich history with his own contributions to black studies in america as well as his family history is very interesting as well so very very interesting overall he also talked about this concept that he coined called e black which is essentially just The black experience in virtual spaces so on the internet on twitter on instagram um and he wrote a book about it he did not really go in detail about it in the podcast episode but i'm considering reading that book because i think it's very interesting especially in the 21st century you know gen z so those of us who are now finishing college or doing whatever you know who have grown up on the internet within the internet and seeing a lot of black Things being co-opted as internet culture, I think it's a great read for those of us who spend a lot of time on the internet, Um, and I think it's a great way to improve media literacy because we, I personally have seen a lot of criticism on, you know, reading and media literacy as a whole and books. I mean, this is not a new conversation. I'm not the most knowledgeable on the conversation to speak on it, but there is a a distrust of like academia and intelligence and while some of it is is founded on valid reasons others of it i find very harmful so abdul akalima uh, someone i'm going to be looking into i liked his his uh, comments on afrofuturism in media and you know beyond that and his concept of uh e-blackness so blackness within virtual spaces as well and that's something i'm gonna really look into it's funny. I was also doing some research. You know, I do a lot of research for this podcast and for my work that is and is not related to this podcast. And as you guys know, I think I mentioned in the first episode of Power BT. Power BT is a Guyanese expression for someone who talks a lot. So, if you talk a lot, people say you eat power BT, which is essentially a parrot's bottom. And so, I frequently look up and double check. You know, Caribbean. You know, phrases and words just because I don't know them all. You know, I am an American person with Caribbean parents and despite identifying as a Caribbean person um and being knowledgeable on my own culture, there's just some things I'm not going to see because I live in America I always have and I likely always will. Um but I was looking up Grenadian um like slang and and vocabulary and stuff just to help make my writing authentic. And funny enough, I found that Parabiti is in Grenadian, you know, Creole as well, English Creole, but it's simply Parabatum, Bottom. So I thought that was funny. I thought that was interesting. It brought a smile to my face. And I just wanted to share with you how we as people are so connected, you know, across many different islands. And we likely always have been, especially here in this African diaspora, you know, who knows where our people have come and gone from how we've influenced one another and I think that you know that connection is becoming stronger in our modern day and it should be motivation to not engage in ignorant conversations like diaspora wars and you know xenophobia and all types of hate and who's owed what and who is not owed another thing so just wanted to do my best to promote unity between our diaspora and between our larger world so before I get into, you know, the inspiration behind today's story um, and the actual narration of the story, I wanted to give a small recap of, you know, Karaku's Big Drum Dance because that is where these stories and their collections that I've created come from. That is what they're inspired by. So if you're new to the podcast, if you're just not hopping in, um, I'm writing a collection of stories of short stories inspired by my one of my homelands, Karaku which is part of Grenada, um, based off of a religious tradition that is done there known as the Big Drum Dance. Essentially, it is a religious tradition that we practice alongside Saint, um, Christianity um, to honor the ancestors. It is done at different times for different occasions, usually when people pass away, but also when a house is built, when rain needs to be called because Karakou gets hit with a lot of droughts. Um, and when people get married, it is done for many different reasons, including when the ancestors visit you in a dream and tell you that you need to do certain duty, as famed big drum practitioner Mary Fortune would say. So if you're interested in getting the full recap on Karaku's Big Drum Dance, you can look at an older episode that I published. It doesn't have a story in it. It's simply like an informational dump. Um, So that's just a recap of Karakou's big drum dance. And we are currently in the Cromanti collection. This is inspired by our Cromanti nation. You know, Cromanti people have been spread all throughout the diaspora. Um, They're known, you know, as what is called Akan, different Akan groups in the West Indies and the Old English that is used. And in that region, they are referred to as Cromanti. So you find Cromanti people in... Karaku in, in Suriname, Guyana, in Jamaica. And in last week's episode, I really talked about the Cromanti influence and presence in Jamaica with Queen Nani of the Maroons, a real bad woman. Um, and today I want to talk about Guyana and Cromanti influence. So as I said before, my mother, her parents are from Karaku. And my father is born and raised in Guyana, in Georgetown, Guyana. So we have our own famed slave revolt led by Cuffy, And he was said to be in a con man. So that would make him of the Cromonti nation, um, just like Queen Nani all the way in Jamaica. And I really want to talk about the slave revolt he led, which was known as the Burby Slave Revolt. Um, Burbese is now a town in Guyana where my um, dad's father was born. And pro- I think around the Guyana's independence from the British, they actually um, created a stone statue to celebrate Cuffy for his um, for his work in trying to defeat European powers and to give a nod to the African ancestors of Guyana. So we're going to talk a little bit about that slave revolt and then also about the story I've created. So, while it's kind of unclear how well recorded Guyana's history is when it comes to African people, because as we know, a lot of slave records were destroyed intentionally um so as not to incriminate Europeans like further in the future they were worried their descendants would think they were monsters and things like that um Cuffy his history is well recorded it is known that he died in seventeen sixty three it is known that he was born in west africa and is a con and was stolen into slavery to work into the um at the time dutch colony of guyana so not Suriname. at the time british guyana was dutch in its inception and so essentially two of the guyanas of south america belonged to the dutch the dutch were known to be very very brutal slave owners i think obviously the british are known for how they have colonized the world and spread it across the globe, but uh, many European powers, if they were involved in slavery, um, depending on where they are in the world, they were not very kind. So we can look at how in America they talk about um, France's reaction to indigenous and to African people, how they were more friendly, how they tried to co-opt culture more, um, especially with Native Americans in North America. At the same time, in the Caribbean, they are extremely brutal to their indigenous and African counterparts, wiping out indigenous communities, um, obviously in Haiti and, you know, enslaving African people in Haiti as well. In fact, had the French won the Haitian Revolution, their plan was actually to exterminate um, all of the African inhabitants within Haiti. So just interesting to see how European attitudes towards indigenous and African people uh, moves across the globe. Um, But the Dutch, since we're talking about them, they were known to be highly, highly brutal towards their um, enslaved African property. And so Cuffy was part of a um, slave revolt movement that started on February 23rd in 1763. Um, It started at a plantation called Magdalenburg um, on the Kanji River, which was successful in the fact that the enslaved Africans burned down the house and were able to travel to another river where they did not know that Native Americans and European soldiers were waiting for them um, in Suriname and ended up killing them. Um, So Cuffy, he really became a larger figure in the revolt um, as of February 27th, 1763, where he organized slaves into a military unit and allowed the revolt to spread to neighboring plantations. So this got so much attention that the Dutch governor at the time, um, his name is Simon van Hugenheim, he sent military assistance to the region to help defeat the enslaved Africans because it had already reached the Burbese River and was steadily moving towards the capital of Burbese um, at the time, which was known as Fort NASA. And so Cuffy and his followers managed to get guns and gunpowder um, and were able to attack plantations. By March 3rd, so this has gone on for about two weeks now. Cuffy has him, he's gotten 600 people to follow him and they tried to take another plantation at Perenboom um, and they actually allowed the Europeans to leave. Um, but as soon as they left, the the you know rebels as they're labeled the maroons as i would call them um killed many of the europeans and they kept some of them as prisoners actually cuffy we do not know his age but it is said that he took a young woman who was european her name was sarah george she was 19 years old and he kept her as his wife um so cuffy then becomes the leader of these um, enslaved Africans who have now freed themselves and he declares himself the governor of Burbese. And he has um, some people step up as military officers and he tries to establish discipline over his troops. Um, And they even set up farms. So they actually set up some semblance, if not complete um, semblance, of an independent community. So essentially, it became a maroon community. And part of why in different places of the world including the states including different parts of the caribbean why it's hard to trace maroon communities is because these um, independent african societies of freed slaves um, were intentionally wiped out they were intentionally sought out and destroyed with collaboration between indigenous people and european people as well Um, sadly in april of 1763 the um, slave revolt began to fall apart. Um, Cuffy he wrote to the governor of um, Dutch Guyana and said he did not want a war against Europeans, and he proposed a partition of Berbice, which allowed Europeans to occupy coastal areas, and allowed um, enslaved or freed Africans to occupy the interior. Funny enough, you see something similar within Suriname, where the Maroon communities there's like six different tribes. I think one of them is known as the Juka. They live within the interior of Suriname and you know, the non Baroon communities of Suriname live along the coast. So I think something very similar would have been set up had this had been successful. Um but it did not. You know, the governor van Hoogenheim he delayed his decision to reply. Um and said that it would take three to four months, but really he was waiting on support from other colonies, including one from Suriname, and one from Barbados, and another place called Saint Eustatius. Um, so, Cuffy, by May, so after like a month, Cuffy decided that he was waiting too long and he needed to be offensive. So he ordered his forces to attack. The Europeans, but he suffered many losses. It's not clear what his strategy was in terms of battle plans. Um, but his defeat caused division amongst his organization, amongst his followers, and they became weaker. And his his right hand man, Captain Akara, became the leader of a new faction that opposed, um, Cuffy. So now Cuffy and his followers have split into two divisions, and they essentially had a civil war amongst themselves. And obviously, the Europeans capitalized on that and um, defeated Cuffy. Um, and Cuffy is said to have actually committed suicide on October nineteenth, seventeen sixty-three, the day before my mother's birthday. So Cuffy commits suicide, and um, the freed Africans, their their organization, has now been weakened due to infighting and the loss of a leader. And all on this time, the Europeans had been strengthening themselves with backup coming from Barbados, and Suriname, and Saint Eustatius. So by the time um, April of the following year came around, April fifteenth, Captain Akara, who had rebelled against Cuffy, um, he was captured, and that was essentially the end of the slave revolt. So it was somewhat successful, obviously not as successful as Haiti, but it does have an important place in history because any resistance is worthy of remembering. Um, It's worthy of making note of. So in this day, um, Cuffy is celebrated. Um, The anniversary of the slave rebellion is the 23rd of February and has been labeled um, Republic Day of Guyana. Um, And he is commemorated in the 1763 monument in the square of the revolution in Guyana's capital, Georgetown, where my father was born. Um, So, interesting to see how Captain Akara, Cuffy's right-hand man, does not celebrate it at all. Um, There's not any monuments for him or any really memory or recollection of him, despite the fact that he was part of Cuffy's, you know, team and then turned against him. But Cuffy is, he's memorialized, he's celebrated. In fact, the, um, one of the religions, very small within Guyana, I think it's, it would be considered a sect of Christianity, known as faithism and i think i touched on this a little in my last episode it's known as faithism it's also known as guyanese Kumpha. they are the only religious group in the entire country to see the end of slavery as an as a holiday to be celebrated and to see um Cuffy as someone to be honored so very very interesting he is an example of chromanti presence within the west indies um as well as you know african resistance to european powers within the west indies and even though he ultimately um did not succeed and had an untimely end he he took his life into his own hands but i think he's someone to still be honored and to be celebrated because of his efforts so i know we've had a few episodes in power bt but this episode is only the second um episode including a story inspired by karaku's big drum dance and it is the second story part of my chromanti collection um and this story is inspired by um a song another song about anansi um so i wanted to kind of go over anansi um i know i mentioned that he is in a con spirit he is you know, seen as a folk character to most people, but he does have spiritual importance to people within the traditional Akan religion known as Akom, um, as well as um, he has some spiritual importance in Haitian Bodun, and he's seen as a guide de Wa, which has to do with the dead. And in Kiaraku, um, Anansi, um, he's essentially called on to forgive people, um, to have, for people to have their sins forgiven, um, and he also takes on the role of folk characters. so there are stories with Anansi and trickster animals such as goats and karaku. Um and just in general, people know these stories as the Anansi stories um, or spider tales. Um, so that is kind of just a small recap of Anansi in you know when we think of rebellious or or uh, when we think of events in terms of resistance to the slave trade anansi is a figure of rebellion he is similar to high john which is a um african-american folk character as well as spirit um within their african derived religion known as hulu so anansi kind of takes on that similar form within the broader west indies um in different stories and i kind of highlighted that in my last story um the first one of the Chromancy collection. But this one, this one is, I think this one plays more on Anansi as a trickster, because Anansi is a trickster spirit. And in African religions, there are wicked spirits, yes, but there's no such thing as a demon, there's no such thing as a devil. Um, In West African and African in general um, religions, including those in the Caribbean, um, trickster spirits are essentially very intelligent beings and so you can ask them what you want you can ask them for favors and things like that and they can grant it to you but they will essentially embark a lesson or they might give give it to you in a way that you did not expect so say you ask for money from a trickster spirit they might give you the money but it might come because you know someone passed away and they had it written in their will that you would get money you know or you might want a lot of success in your career but you might have to lose something else you know it might come out of at a cost it might come out of a lot of controversy or something like that so tricks for spirits are just they're very cunning and you have to be smart about how you um ask for favors from them um and so Anansi is one of them there's actually a story with Anansi in the West Indies and I I saw this from another Caribbean creator who is from St. Vincent, and essentially it is with um, an animal, which is very common for animals to be characters or to be spirits, um, an animal known as Agouti. And Agouti is a little rodent. And basically, Agouti is very greedy. And I'm gonna say that the story comes from St. Vincent. It might not, I'm only saying that because the creator themselves is from St. Vincent. So that's where I'm gonna attribute it from. But essentially, Agouti sees Anansi. And Anansi's in his spider form. And Anansi has a bunch of rings on each leg. He has eight legs. He has eight rings. And so Aguchi asks Anansi how he can get them. And Anansi tells Aguchi to go to his house and to um, ask for help, essentially, and wait for a voice to tell him what to do to get the things he wants. So Aguchi goes to his house that night and he's you know waiting for a voice to speak to him and he asks for what he wants and essentially it's anansi you know he's a spider so he's hanging from the ceiling and because it's so dark aguchi cannot see him and so anansi says that if he wants um 10 pairs of shoes he needs to give his shoes away the pair of shoes he has so the next day anansi goes to aguchi and tells him that he doesn't have any shoes so aguchi thinks oh if i give away my shoes i'm gonna get 10 pairs and so he does this thinking that he's going to get 10 pairs of shoes. cannot recall whether or not he actually gets them or not. And so then Anansi does the same thing. The next night, Aguti asks for something. Anansi tells him that he will get a bunch of it if he gives it away. And then the next day, Anansi will ask for that very same item. And Aguti will give it away to Anansi, thinking he's going to get more. And he ends up getting nothing. And this goes on and on and on. And eventually... Anansi goes to Aguti and he says, Aguti, I don't have a house. And so Aguti thinks that, hmm, if I give up my house, then I will have so-and-so houses. I'll have eight houses or 10 houses, whichever. Just more than one. Aguti essentially represents greed in the story. And so he gives up his house to Anansi. But before he can get the multitude of houses that he believes he is owed, because he has no shelter a hawk, which is his predator, comes and eats a guti. And essentially, this story is about greed and how greed can be the death of you, essentially. But I tell this story to highlight Anansi's role as a trickster spirit in Caribbean um, stories and Caribbean culture, as well as in culture all across the Americas, whether it's in the United States, in Brazil, in Colombia, so on and so forth. So that's just a little... You know recap on anansi how he shows up and what he represents so given that information i kind of want to bring it all back to karaku's big drum dance um and how anansi shows up there and i'm gonna play a short recording of anansi um the song is called anansio kumari that's how i've labeled it um it was really just labeled as chromanti i guess when alan lomax and um, Winston Fleary and other people from who labeled these songs. Sometimes they didn't put the name. They just put the ethnic group that it belonged to. Um, so uh, it is labeled as Chromanti in some recordings, in other recordings. Actually, it's labeled as Chamba, which is another group of Karaku's big drum dance. It's labeled as Chamba, but I put it under Chromanti because I know that Anansi isn't Akan spirit. He comes from a Khan culture. And I think that this mislabeling is... An effect of things being mixed on plantation life which happens as different African ethnic groups come together and share things and I think that's why it was labeled as Chamba but it's really a Cro-Monty song. Um, this is another one of the songs where I do not have the translation for and I do not know the exact meaning of the lyrics despite all my attempts to break it down. Um, I have some ideas but I do not know exactly what it means. Um, I. Sp- personally think the song has to do with calling anansi to break things um and kind of clear paths for people the reason i say that is because there's a word in the song breco which makes me think of beku in haitian creole which means to strike um to beat or to hit and then the word baria makes me think of bare in haitian creole which means broken or broke um so that's kind of the connections I made. As you can see, I I drew parallels to Haitian Creole because this song is in Grenadian French Creole, also known as Patois, or I should say Caracou French Creole, also known as Patois. Um, and so I used Haitian Creole as the example for the translations of what they could be. Um, but it is important to say that the thing about Creole languages and Patois and Pigeons is they are not just two languages put together there are many many languages put together so because this language is not commonly spoken anymore some of the translations have just been lost so I'm just doing the best I can with with a song like this to figure out what it means but based on what I can figure out what I think I think this song is about calling a Nazi to break something or potentially fix what is broken but I'm going to play the recording of this song for you all that's the recording of the song that was filmed in 19 or i should say recorded that was recorded in 1956 um so this material like i said is pretty old um and the tradition has existed um since either the late 1600s early 1700s it is quite old um but i wanted to before we get into the story that i wrote inspired by this song i want to you know give my disclaimer yet again that this story that I am narrating is a work of my own fiction, and it is not the origin or the backstory behind this song, um, Anancio Kumari. These two, um, I mean, they're related in the sense that my story is inspired by the song, but this is not how this song came to be. These stories that I'm narrating are not how these songs came um, to be. This is not how this tradition was created. It's an oral tradition, it is a musical tradition, it is a spiritual tradition. So I just want to reiterate that to help preserve Karaku's big drum dance in its entirety and its authenticity. um, And reiterate that for those who may be from Karaku and for those who may be from somewhere else. So my story inspired by this song is called, When Bad Tings Brick, Good Can Come. In the beginning, there was not light and darkness, nor wind and earth nor water and fire. In the beginning, there was no duality, no either or. In the beginning, there was a spiral, a ceaseless wheel connected by strands of silk. It is on this plane that everything exists, connected by wisps of thread and dewdrops. It is here that things take place. To Nora, the best time of the day was in the morning, specifically the dawn. It was the only time that she seemed to have a break from the monotonous tone her life took on when she visited her family's tiny island, the only time she experienced a semblance of what the rest of the world called seasons. Trapped in the middle of the ocean and tied against Earth's waistline, Karaku only knew two things about weather, rain and sun. The dawn, however, gave her and Nora a glimpse into what frosty mornings feel like. Nora would likely see dusk the same way if she wasn't so exhausted from her days. Rising from her bed, she rested her head on the windowsill, staring out past her neighbor's house and down the rolling hill to the irregular curve of the shore far below. The sun had yet to rise over her little island, but it was making its way up steadily, its rays of light pulling it into the sky like the many legs of the congaree, millipedes that huddled in the cool shade of houses and buildings. Nora rolled her eyes to herself as she heard the approach of her mother's footsteps. I should have stayed in bed, she thought. Good morning, Nora, said Rosalind, her voice deep. She covered her mouth as a cough overwhelmed her, and Nora waited until she was done before speaking. Good morning, Mommy. Are you okay? i good. It's only a cough. When we go back to America, I'll go see a doctor. You could make breakfast, please? Nora smiled dryly. Her mother wasn't asking. Yes, Mommy. What would you like to eat? Rosalind began to walk away, but she raised her voice so that Nora could still hear her. There should be some sardines left in the fridge and you got see and Tingda in the kitchen. Make bake or toast, whichever you like. Yes, Mommy. I'll be down in one second. Nora quietly slipped into the bathroom, lingering a moment in the hallway as her mother disappeared back into her own bedroom. It was just the two of them in the house. Nora had insisted that they stay in town. But her mother had refused. In fact, her exact words were, I don't want to be there when it's noisy and everyone's doing their business. I come to Karaku for peace and quiet, for family. New York has plenty noise for me. Karaku must give me quiet. Nora frowned as she looked at her reflection. Her skin, normally light and yellow, had darkened since she'd left the States. Her hair, which was neatly parted in flat twists, felt dry to the touch. The heat and humidity of the tropics was taking a toll on everything, including her sense of time. She could barely remember how long they'd been on the island. Two weeks, Nora's frown deepened as she tried to remember their departure from America, but she couldn't even recall going to the airport or flying. She leaned her head out the bathroom door and craned her neck. Mom, how long have we been here? What? You mustn't yell, Nora. Come close if you want to speak to me. Nora sucked her teeth. Never mind. She gasped as something crawled on her hand and frantically brushed it off. Her eyes settled on a small black spider by her toothbrush and in turn, its eyes settled on her. It was then that Rosalind appeared outside the bathroom, her face full of concern. Nora? Rosalind nudged her daughter. Why you look so? The hair on Nora and Rosalind's arms stood up as something cool brushed against their skin. They tried to move, but were held in place as if transfixed by giant, invisible strands of silk. Rosalind's eyes settled on the little spider, and she took a deep breath as she tried to calm herself. "'It's the devil,' Rosalind said through tight lips. A disembodied voice laughed, echoing around them and causing the walls to shudder. "'Oh, Rosalind, you're better than not. You know I is no devil, just a trickster, just a spider. "'What you want, Anansi?' The spider laughed again, its shekler flexing. You don't remember all those years ago when you're me to break the man Yamari? I broke him good. I only come to let you know the job is done. No, you lie. You have more to tell. Nora could feel the spider's eyes set on her. What is it? Don't just stare at me. Spit it out. You don't remember when your chest was in your bod and you had to pull over and rest? You asked for help and no one was there but me. My heart broke with yours that day, Nora, but you sang a song while you dying breath, just as your mother did when she called on me for help. It was then that the memories of Nora's death came flooding back to her. She could see and feel it all, the pain in her chest, the heat within the car, the tears of agony as they slid down her cheeks, and the song she had heard her mother sing on rare occasion for comfort. Rosalind's voice came out shakily as the song came back to her. Anancio Kumario, eh Anansio, Pangbaria, Pangbaria, Breco Pang Pangbaria, pang Anancio Kumario. Nora's eyes watered as her mother's voice trailed off. Anansi laughed again. You know what that song means? No, Rosalind said, it's patois, no one knows what it means. So you think, Anansi answered, when you sing that song, you call me to make a part in your life, to clear away so good can come. See where you're Your are home where life is good. I broke the bad things so good can come, just like your ox. Anansi's disembodied laugh echoed around them, and Nora and Rosalind stared at the spider with awe as it scurried into the sink drain, never to be seen again. And that's the end of the story. When bad things break, good can come. Um, I wrote it inspired off of two people in my family Rosalind being my Nana, my mom's mom, and Nora being my aunt, my mom's sister. Both of them have, have been passed away for quite some time now. Um, and some of those things in the story are you know inspired by real effects if not true so my auntie she had passed away from a heart attack if i remember correctly um in her car and um my nana she had had an abusive partner um her husband was quite abusive um and so i kind of played on that with the whole idea of asking tricksters to do things for you um and not recognizing how that might happen so In the story, obviously, Anansi, you know, he, in a sense, just says he gets, he broke the man. He basically got rid of Rosalind's husband. Um, And then with Nora, he just said he helped her. He relieved her of her pain, but he took her to Karaku. So essentially, they're both passed away. They're deceased. I wouldn't necessarily say they're in heaven, you know, but some might think of it that way. I mean, people say the Caribbean is paradise. And so it would only make sense to... Have people who pass away who are from the Caribbean be in the Caribbean when they die? um, In my opinion, Um, and so I kind of played on that, played on Anansi being a trickster, um, and those kind of tropes, and kind of tied it into my um, my own family because I do think my work is a reflection of my family in certain aspects. I would like it to be. Um, It was tricky because I didn't know my aunt Nora very well, so making her seem annoyed and stuff all the time. I don't know if that was actually in her personality. Uh, And the other part is my Nana had a very distinct voice. So even though I'm using like, someone might label it as like general West Indian Creole, depending on where they're from, right? Um, I wouldn't say that what I used is obviously or distinctly like kayak or a grenadian i wouldn't say that um i remember how her voice sounded but i don't remember how she spoke she passed away when i was um almost 12 years old and by that time i'd already been living in georgia for a while and she still lived in new york so um a lot of what i know of her is off of memory but it's not as clear as it would be for my family from guyana i mean my grandparents and aunts and uncles on that side of my family but did my best um did my best with what I remembered what I could. And I hope you guys enjoy the story. I hope you guys enjoy the lessons that I try to incorporate um, on Caribbean culture and history as well. Um and thank you for being here. Please share, you know, leave a review um, and keep coming back to listen. I really appreciate all of you. Um and I'll see you again next week.